you because you care for us and because you have adopted us as your children. And Father, as one of your children, I pray for grace and mercy to teach on this great privilege that we have. I pray that your teaching on prayer will be clear, that we'll all be encouraged to go to you to take our concerns, um, to take our, our, our joys, and to take our hearts to you. I pray for just a, a sense of dependence for me as I preach on prayer, that you will help all of us to be motivated to go to you continually because you want good things for us in Christ's name. Amen. Well, after every national tragedy, we have an interesting ritual that you can follow in social media. Uh, prominent public officials will offer their thoughts and prayers, and these thoughts and prayers will be ridiculed by people who see it as a pious excuse for inaction. And some religious leaders get in on this action. Consider the words of Rabbi Danya Ruttenberg. Uh, she writes, God doesn't want your thoughts and prayers. God wants you to know that you are responsible to care for and protect other people and to take action to do so. The Dalai Lama, the leader of the Buddhist faith, writes, We cannot solve this problem only through prayers. I am a Buddhist and I believe in praying. But humans have created this problem and now we are asking God to solve it. It is illogical. God would say, solve it yourself. Because you created it in the first place. And so, if there's a mass shooting, don't give us thoughts and prayers. Advocate for a ban on assault weapons. If there's a hurricane, don't give us thoughts and prayers. Advocate for green energy. And that's kind of how the game is rigged, right? And, and that posture towards prayer is really rooted in a perception of God that he's distant, he's uninvolved. Uh, prayers don't really accomplish anything. If it makes you feel better, go for it. But don't think that prayer changes anything, right? Now, as good Christians, we would never say that, right? We believe in an all-powerful, omnipotent God that can do anything and often mediates his strength through prayer. But I think if we're honest, sometimes our, our prayer is not really prayer, at least in my case, it turns into this mental planning session. Have you ever been there? Father, today is the eve of the sign-up for the Ironmen. I pray that all the links will work, and I pray that I'll call Rachel and double-check those links. I also pray that the, the graphics will really speak to people's hearts and that I will remember to talk to David Hoffman about that one thing. What is that thing? What is that thing? Anyway, you, you ever been there? Or is that just me? Well, that's just you, Pastor Dave. I pray all the time. Not like that. Well, good for you. Good for you. But for the rest of us, right, there is kind of this, like, to, for something to get done, don't just sit there with your eyes closed talking to deity. Get out there and do something. And yet, when you look at the success of the ministry of Jesus, he often went to the Lord in prayer. And there's this recognition that he was able to do something, and his disciples decided that they want to learn from him. And so after having a, um, you know, after the scene of, 
of Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus, learning from his words and kind of this private devotion, you see another form of private devotion, and that's the discipline of prayer. In Luke 11, 1 through 4, we read this. Now, Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. And so a disciple wants to learn how to pray from Jesus. And and he says, teach us how to pray, just like John the Baptist taught his disciples how to pray. Now, in that day and age, every, every rabbi, every school of thought had their own unique prayer practice. If you grew up Episcopalian or Anglican, right, you learn how to pray from the book of Common prayer, right? These are prayers common to everyone in this faith community, and they are instructive, right? And so, what this disciple wants to know, what all the disciples want to know is, what is your book of common prayer? What are the distinctives of your prayer life that you can pass along to us so that we can pray like you? And so, Jesus offers up this teaching on prayer. Now, if you are a perceptive Bible student, or if you've grown up in the church, you almost wanted to go along with me, but then you realize that there's some deviations, right? This is different from the Lord's Prayer that we see in in Matthew chapter 6. It does not contradict, but it has many of the overlapping elements in the same form. But I think what it shows you is that Jesus is not looking for you to just recite a prayer. It's not just recite this after me. There's a certain amount of flexibility here. What this suggests is that prayer is not necessarily anchored in its practice, but in the posture of the one making the supplications. And your posture in prayer is really anchored in your perception of God, right? For those people who who deride thoughts and prayers, they don't really have a robust understanding of God, and that shows itself in its lack of a prayer life. But if you have the right posture and you see yourself as needy, desperate, and dependent, and God is all-powerful, then these principles of prayer will, will guide you and lead you to have the right posture. And from there, your prayer can be expressed in many meaningful ways. Does that make sense? So what we're going to do is we're going to look at some of the principles of the disciples' prayer. And we're going to see that, one, you have to pray to the right address. Two, pray for God's purposes. And three, pray for God's provision. All of these stem from the right posture, right? If you have the right perception of God, you'll have the right posture towards him, the right posture towards prayer, and that will show itself in how you practice your prayer. So let's look at this first point. Pray to the right address. Now, I have a very bad habit where I mix up my kids' names specifically my sons, I will look directly at Jake and say, Nate, take out the trash. And Jake doesn't respond. Nate, 
Take out the trash now. And he's still not responding. And then Becky will correct me. That's Jacob. Oh, I was just testing <laughs> him. I thought Nate was in the other room. He's in college. Oh, well, there goes that. Um, <laughs> right? See, Jake was not going to respond because it wasn't calling him out by his name, right? You have to have the right address. And so when we address God, we address him as Father, right? Father, hallowed be your name. And, and this is fascinating because in the Old Testament, God is described as Father. We'll talk more about this later on. But he's never directly addressed as Father. In fact, when Jesus prays, he always addresses God as Father with one exception. Do you know what that is? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right? Jesus addresses him as Father. And now he is telling his disciples, you address him as Father. In the school of prayer, taught by Jesus, it begins with the right address that you address him as Father. Now, there's some implications here. First of all, Fatherhood implies the right relationship, that you have a right relationship with God. Now, there is a sense that all of us could address God as Father. In Acts 17, 28, Paul teaches that in Him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, poets have said, for we are indeed His offspring, right? All human beings have been created by God. You could say that He's the progenitor of everyone. Right? He is our father in that sense. But there's also a spiritual sense of fatherhood where there's really two fathers out there. Jesus makes this very clear when he talks to the scribes and Pharisees. He says in John 8, you are of your father the devil. Right? He goes on to talk to him as a father of lies. We see that uh, Christians are described as or I'm sorry, unbelievers are described as children of wrath. But in Ephesians 5.8, Paul tells the believers, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are the light of the world. Walk as children of light. Right? There is a, a change of families when you become a believer. There is a, there is a transition. And how does this take place? Well, John 1.12 but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. When you believe in Jesus as a Messiah, you believe who he taught himself to be. When you believe that he died and rose again, that he paid for your sin, you believe, you receive this, you become a child of God. And you can call him father in the fullest sense. And this implies... A, an accessible relationship, okay? So fatherhood implies a redeemed relationship. Fatherhood also implies a, an accessible relationship. Now, as, as I mentioned earlier, God is often described as a father in the Old Testament scriptures. For instance, in Psalm 103, 13, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him, right? He is likened to a father. In, Second Chron in 1 Chronicles 29.10, Therefore David blessed the Lord in the presence of the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the father of 
the, the God of Israel, our Father forever and ever. Amen. Notice how he is described as our Father. But Jesus takes it a step further and says, you can call him Father. Right? The, the fact that Jesus called him Father would be understandable because he's the Son of God, right? He prays to him as Father. But now he says, you, my disciples, you can call him Father. Because, the implied cause, is because you've been adopted. In Galatians 4, 6, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. When you become a believer, the Holy Spirit is inside of you and you can cry, Abba, Father. He is your dad. I've heard it said that the only person who could wake up a king in the middle of the night and demand a glass of milk is his child, right? Being that he is your father, he always has time for you. He always wants to hear from you. When you say father, his ears perk up because he knows the voice of his child, right? When you call God father, it implies an accessible relationship. It also implies a benevolent relationship. You see, in the ancient Near East, there was an intimacy between the father and the child. The father was benevolent towards his child. The child was vulnerable and entrusted to the father's care, and he did whatever he could to try to raise them well. In fact, I, I look at Hebrews chapter 12, right, when you learn about the discipline of a father where the author says, and have you forgot the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives, right? A good father does that. And in verse 11, for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields a peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. God has an active interest in your development. And even the hard things in your life, the disappointments, the discipline, even those come from the hand of a loving father and they have a redemptive purpose to train you to become more like your dad. Right? So when we pray to him as father, it is we have a redeemed relationship, an accessible relationship, and a benevolent relationship And there's an element that we have a familial relationship, right? All of his disciples are trained to address God as Father. In the parallel in Matthew 6, we address him as our Father. Now, if we all have the same Father, it goes to show that we would all be brothers and sisters, right? The prayer of the disciple is a prayer by all the disciples that we are part of a spiritual family. And fifth, fatherhood implies a reverent relationship, right? There is a sense where we're not praying to our father like he's Homer Simpson or some nitwit sitcom dad, but he is a reverent, protective father. He is the leader of this spiritual family that we have. So we address him as father, Right? That is the first. You pray to the right address. 
And then it's shaped for, then, then we're shaped by praying for God's purposes. Okay? Now, when people pray, they often have some sort of agenda, right? Father, I pray that I will get this job. Father, I pray for so-and-so's broken leg. Right? I, I pray that I'll be able to ace this test. Right? There's always some sort of an agenda. And those aren't bad. But what's interesting is before you get into your agenda, Jesus teaches his disciples to think about God's agenda. Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Okay? Two agendas. Hallowed be your name. He's asking God to sanctify your name, and he's asking God, your kingdom come. Bring it, Lord. We want it. So we'll look at each one of these. One is to sanctify your name. Now, I have an unfortunate last name in that it gets mispronounced all the time. My poor wife, whose maiden name is Anderson, Anderson never gets mispronounced. But Hintz does. Heinz, party of six, I mean, it happens all the time. It's something that our family knows and we live with. And, and you think about what would happen if you're friends with somebody and they always get your name wrong. Or ladies, you're, you're dating someone and you can't get your name right. How many dates would it take for you to say, get a clue, right? So there's a sense where we all want our names revered in some way, that you pronounce it correctly because that's a way of honoring us. But, but there's much more implied when we talk about sanctifying God's name because name was emblematic of your identity and who you are. Like Abram meant father. Abraham meant father of a great nation. God gave him a new name. Look at the meaning of Jesus Christ. Jesus literally means Yahweh saves. Christ is the anointed son of David. You look at Yahweh, the, the name of God. I am who I am, right? Your name is part of your identity. It's who you are. It's what you stand for. It's the purposes you want to accomplish, right? It's your name. And so Jesus is saying that when you pray, you pray to God, sanctify your name. Make your name holy. Now, how is that even possible? It's like, like praying that water becomes wet or a diamond becomes hard. How can you sanctify the most holy name in the universe, right? Well, part of this is demonstrated by the type of relationship that God has with his redeemed people. Now, you look at God being glorious, right? The sun is also glorious, right? How can you make the sun shine any brighter than it already shines? Well, the answer would be to surround it with a million mirrors. That way it reflects the beams of the sun to the far reaches of the universe. Now, in this fallen world, God has called out a redeemed people to, to function as mirrors to reflect his glory to the far reaches of this creation. And it started with Israel, right, where God redeemed Israel to be his holy people, his chosen nation, a kingdom of priests, and they were to reflect the beams of his glory throughout all the world. But how did that work out? Right? They were unfaithful. They rebelled against him. They worshipped idols. They were terrible examples. There were mirrors that were facing the wrong way and resided in darkness. But, but God makes a promise to them that they will be redeemed to be what they were meant to be. And listen carefully to Isaiah 
29, 22 through 23, okay? There's going to be a familiar line in here that I think really makes the Lord's prayer make sense. Therefore, thus says the Lord, who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob. Jacob shall no more be ashamed. Jacob is emblematic of Israel. No more shall his face grow pale. For when he sees his children, that is Israel right there, the work of my hands in his midst, they will sanctify my name. Did you catch that? They will sanctify the Holy One of Jacob and will stand in awe of the God of Israel. How will they sanctify his name? They will sanctify his name when they become what they were meant to be, which is a people devoted to the glory of God. Right? God is hallowed when we keep his commands. God is hallowed when we represent him, and our conduct shows that he is great and wonderful, right? All of us, to a certain extent, we carry his name to the world. Matthew 5, 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. When his redeemed people act like redeemed people in obedience and reverence, his name is sanctified. Now, three weeks ago, my family took a trip to Lawrence where we watched the first of KU's three victories this season. They're the only undefeated team in Kansas. Every dog has his day, and this is my day. But as we were walking into the stadium, we walked by a group of people holding up these signs that had all kinds of vile hatred spewed out towards homosexuals. And I felt embarrassed. I felt embarrassed, right? Because they're not sanctifying and they're not hallowing the name of Christ. You see, we see when when people don't do that, it is very obvious, right? And so when a disciple goes to the Lord in prayer, we want to give him a good reputation. We want him to be glorified. We want his fame to be recognized, right? That is the purpose of prayer is, Father, more than anything, I want your greatness and your glory and your name to be hallowed and sanctified. And that is most fully done. That will be most fully accomplished when his kingdom comes. Right, The kingdom is a place where God will manifestly reign. It's a place where Christ will reign, where the curse is peeled back, where all, that, where all will, be, will be right in the world. And this is something that the disciples were anticipating. After he was resurrected, we see in the sequel to Luke, the book of Acts, in Acts, 6, 1, or Acts chapter uh, 1, verse 6, so they... So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Is this a time when you're going to make good on all these promises and all will be as it should be? They hoped that the Messiah would now reign. The glorified Christ would establish his reign here on earth. But now is not the time. Now is the time for you to take his gospel to all nations, but in the future something will happen. In verse 10, after he was being ascended, and while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. 
When we pray your kingdom come, we're praying that he comes back, that Jesus returns, and he restores this world to what it should be. I remember teaching on the Lord's Prayer to some college students at my old church, and one one student was kind of troubled by it. She said, if you pray for thy kingdom come, that basically means all his enemies are vanquished, and I have a lot of enemies in my family, a lot of people who would be destroyed at that moment, right? Do you kind of sense that? And this is where praying for thy kingdom come makes sense when we say, hallowed be your name. When you're God-centered, when you are more concerned about, I'll say, God being reviled and I'll use this loosely, suffering insults from the hands of men than people suffering as they get what they deserve. (laughs) Right? God coming back, Him establishing His glory is the most important priority for a disciple. We want God's glory more than anything. Thy kingdom come. So, Seeing that we have the right address, right, you pray to God the Father, you pray for His priorities, and then, and then, you get to God's provisions. Give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. Now, I think it's fascinating that He doesn't just jump into daily bread, right? You remember who you're praying to. You remember his priorities. And then you get to the basic needs. Does that make sense? It's okay to pray for that. But it's all in the context of him providing what you need to sanctify his name. And it begins with the provision of food, followed by the provision of forgiveness, and then the provision of protection. So look at the first, the provision of food. Give us each day our daily bread. Okay, to go out and to make his name great, to sanctify his name, you need to be fed. Right? Remember how the disciples were sent out to the different cities in, in Israel to proclaim the greatness of the kingdom? Even then, Jesus said, you need to trust me for provision, right? An army marches on its stomach. So in this case, there is a need to pray for a daily bread. Now, we live in a time of abundance where this doesn't make as much sense. There was a study done in Boston where they um, surveyed the homeless, and they found out that only 1.6% of all homeless in Boston during the study was underweight, and a third were overweight, right? Even the poorest among us consumes more calories than they can burn. And we don't live in a time where we are always on the edge of famine. I'm reading a biography of Laura Ingalls Wilder, and it is kind of took some of the varnish off all the Little House in the Prairie books where you realize that they were basically on the edge of death all the time. Charles Ingalls would talk about this great harvest that he has. Then the locusts would eat it. They'd try to, you know, plant some wheat, drought, would come. 
they would look at a very prominent harvest and then a hailstorm would come and just wipe it out. It seems to have, I had to just read it in like five-page doses because it was just so sad. But that is a world that people lived in. Right, nowadays, if the wheat harvest goes bad here, we just import it from, let's say, Ukraine. If not Ukraine, maybe Australia. I mean, there's always some place where you can get them, where you can get the food that you need. And we can forget that the people who prayed this prayer were living on a knife's edge. When agriculture was so difficult and such a struggle and bread was so needful for life, there was an understanding that the breadwinner of every home was God, right? Give us this day our daily bread. Only you can meet our need for sustenance. Lord, we're desperate. We trust in you. So that is what we need physically. Moving on, we need, we, we're going to go to the provision of forgiveness, what we need spiritually, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Right? Food for temporal life, forgiveness for eternal life. And notice how there is a parallel between sin and debt. Right? That is intentional. Right? So when he's talking about forgive us our debts, that's what he says in Matthew. Here is forgive us our sins as we forgive the debts of others. There is a relationship between our forgiveness and the forgiveness that we extend. I'll talk more about that later. But when you look at this concept of, of debt, you know, debt is more than student loan debt. It's more than your mortgage. You think debt to society. When someone commits a crime or when they defraud someone, the balance of justice is out of whack. Therefore, they must be punished in a way that levels the balances. And so when we sin against God, there is no way to remedy that, Right? When you sin against God, the greatest being in all the universe, you sin against um, the king of kings, the sovereign who gives you good things, and that penalty is death. But Jesus makes a provision for that, doesn't he? We just celebrated that when we celebrated communion. On the night before he died, we learn in Matthew 26, 27 to 28, he takes a cup and says, drink it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, for the forgiveness of sins, right? When he died on the cross, he paid the debt, and we can have forgiveness. So there is this desperate need that without forgiveness, we, are, we will suffer the wrath of God and the consequences for our sin because we're in such great debt. But then he turns around and says, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, right? Now, there might be some disturbing implications here, right? Forgive us our our sins, forgive us our debt, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. How well do you all forgive people, right? If, if God's forgiveness towards you was the same as you extend to others, I mean, what would that be like? You die, you show up, expected to be greeted by Jesus, but Jesus puts Peter at his place and well, where's Jesus? Oh, he's over there. Hey, Jesus, I'm, I'm, I'm here finally. Hi. So good to see you. Uh-huh. How you doing? Fine. Right? I mean, we would not expect that at all. Because his forgiveness is so complete. 
That's one disturbing element, right? The other one is it almost seems like you are saved by your forgiveness of others. That I'm, I'm forgiven because I forgive other people, but that's out of whack too because there's no way you can, you can get out of that much debt, so to speak. You see, the idea is that the heart that receives forgiveness is a heart that's been changed by forgiveness. Complete this sentence. We love because he first loved us, right? We forgive, which is an expression of love, because he first forgave us. 1 John 4, 19. We see that there's this continual need to experience God's forgiveness, where John tells believers in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so the idea is, don't expect God to do something for you that you're not willing, even to a lesser degree, willing to do yourself. A forgiven heart is one that forgives others, right? Christians are the most forgiven people on the planet. Therefore, we should be the most forgiven people on the planet, right? There's this idea that we are conduits of forgiveness. Forgive us our sins. And then a reminder, I must forgive other people as well. Part of spiritual protection is forgiveness, right, that you receive from God, but also protection against the bitterness that can really seep into your heart and a hostility that you have towards other people. We love because he first loved us. It's an invitation for that spiritual need to experience God's forgiveness continually. And how does somebody experience it? By letting it flow through you to other people. The third need, provision of protection. And lead us not into temptation. If you have a heart that's bent on sanctifying the name of the Lord, you will not want to sin against him. Now, let's say you are in a college small group. You're going around sharing your needs. And a young man says, pray for me. My girlfriend and I are going to be traveling out of state to see some family, and we're going to have to stay overnight and get a hotel. And with the gas prices as high as they are, we're going to have to share a room. So pray that the Lord will not lead me into temptation. Now, after you're done pistol-whipping that kid for being a moron, (laughs) what would you tell him? Pray that the Lord will not lead you into temptation as you shack up with your girlfriend and you expect nothing will happen. Well, I know other people might struggle with that, but my girlfriend and I, we're different. We're me. Now, what's the problem there? Are they trusting the Lord to not lead them into temptation? 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. If you think you can overcome the temptation, you got another thing coming. Don't trust yourself. Remember when, when Jesus said that tonight all of you are going to fall away. And what was Peter's response? Though they all fall away because of you, I, Peter, will never fall away. And what happened? He fell away. You see, there was a temptation to trust myself to not be led into temptation. But the prayer of a desperate disciple is they're always trusting the Lord to not lead me into temptation. 
right? There's an awareness that I desperately need the Lord's help. I've heard it said that if I could fall away from the faith, I would, right? There, there is this desperation. The only way any of us can walk faithfully with the Lord is because the Lord is keeping us from temptation. And all of this, right? The need for food, we're desperate. The need for forgiveness, we're desperate. The need for spiritual protection, we're desperate. What is the posture of a disciple? It's desperation. And in this day and age of abundance, right? You look at that Proverbs 3.35 when it talks about the, you know, don't make me too rich lest I say, who is the Lord, right? When you have abundance and daily bread is just a given, everybody gets their daily bread here, it's easy to not believe that you are in desperate need of it. When people have a diminished view of God and they don't think their sin is that bad, they have a diminished view of their need for forgiveness. But if you see God for who he really is, when you understand how desperate we are, the natural posture will be to do what? To pray. To pray. In the words of one pastor, prayer is the open admission that without Christ we can do nothing. And prayer is the turning away from ourselves to God and the confidence that he will provide the help we need. Prayer humbles us as needy and exalts God as all-sufficient. When you have the right perception of, of God, right, and the right perception of yourself, there will be a, a desperate posture. You'll always want to go to your Father for the help that you need. So going back to thoughts and prayers. For the record, thoughts do nothing, okay? You can't just think something into existence. God can, but you can't. You can pray for God's thoughts and prayers, but not your own. Thoughts do nothing. But when you do pray, you're actually having a conversation with your father who's listening to you intently, and your father, right, you know the whole childhood boast, you know, my dad can beat up your dad? Well, your father can beat up anyone and can do anything that he wills, right? That's your father. Your father is wise beyond all comprehension. He is listening he is considering and he is thinking. And if your prayer is not the best, he'll make it even better. And he'll always answer that. Right? That is the disposition of your father. And sometimes he won't give you what you want, but he'll give you what you need. Right? You've heard that before. He'll give you the grace to strengthen you and all of that. But the prayer of a disciple is really a prayer of needy dependence on the Lord, and we need him more than we know. And there's certain things that only God can do, right? Only God can sanctify his name. He chooses to do it through you. Only God can make his kingdom come, and he'll accomplish it when he's ready. Only God can provide for your daily bread. Only God can forgive you of your sins. Only God can protect you from temptation. So the question is, do you really believe it? Our prayer life is a reflection of our conviction. The reason why I don't pray as I should is because I don't see myself as needy and I don't see God as truly all-powerful. And this is not to guilt anyone or shame anyone here, right? It's just putting everything in perspective. Nothing good can get done 
Nothing important can really get done. God's name cannot be sanctified apart from God's intervention. So friend, it's not about your practice, right? It's not about setting a five-minute timer and saying, I'm going to pray for five minutes a day and then working your way up to an hour. All right, the practice of prayer is really driven by the posture of desperate dependence and a need for God and trusting that your good Father will give you good things. And we'll talk more about that next week. Let's pray. Father, we come before you grateful for this instruction on prayer. And I pray that this next week, as we wait for another lesson on prayer from the mouth of Jesus, that we'll be encouraged to take everything to you in prayer, knowing that you are our Father, knowing that we have an opportunity to sanctify your name, knowing that we eagerly anticipate your kingdom coming. We pray that you will sustain us physically, that you will sustain us spiritually, that we'll experience the the forgiveness of the gospel over and over again. We also pray that you will lead us not into temptation. Father, we want to be a people that sanctifies your name, a church that sanctifies your name, a church that makes you look great, and we can't do it without you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.